I'm Richard Dockram, and I'm a writer and consultant trying to make the world better. I run the fundraising and social change agency ChangeStar, and I'm the founder of the not-for-profit Life Squared. In this podcast series, I talk to people who are making the world better, not just those tackling big issues at a global scale, but also those working at a local level or in less obvious areas too, from academia to teaching. The aim is not to explore people's personal stories, as there are plenty of other podcasts that do this. Instead, I want to find out more about the issues that these people are working on, how they approach them and why they matter. In the end, I want to show the extraordinary range of different ways in which people are trying to make things better. In this episode, I talk to Professor Tom Kirkwood. Tom is a biologist who for several decades has been a leading figure in the study of ageing, how and why we age. He's published several books, including Time of Our Lives, The Science of Human Ageing, and The End of Age, Why Everything About Ageing is Changing. In 2001, he gave the annual Wreath Lectures. I asked Tom to be a guest on this podcast because I'd read some of his papers and books about the science of ageing and found them completely fascinating. They made me look at ageing in a completely different way. Most people think that our bodies are somehow programmed to decline and die and that this is why we age. But as you'll hear Tom explain, it's actually the opposite. Our bodies are programmed to survive. This has some amazing consequences for ageing and how we might look to improve the quality of people's lives in the future. Our increasing lifespans also raise some fundamental ethical, cultural and political questions about the attitudes we should have towards old age and old people. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'll be back with you at the end with some conclusions and reflections. So, Tom, what do you do? <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, by background, I'm a scientist. I've been studying ageing, uh, the ageing process, for uh, 45 years now. Over, over the course of that, I, I began by asking fairly fundamental biological questions. Um, I, I became interested in the interface with medicine, first of all. Um, as we know, as we get older, we all become vulnerable to a whole range of diseases. So there's a really rich interface between the science of ageing and how it affects our health. But I also became aware that this is such a huge issue in today's society. And so 20 years ago or thereabouts, I decided I wanted to share some of the knowledge that was emerging from research on ageing. And I wrote a book uh, intended for the general readership. I had in mind a reader like my mother, who was completely non-scientifically trained but, you know, sort of interested in these kind of questions. So I wrote that, um, uh, and about the same time, I took up a new post uh, at Newcastle University, uh, where I moved to become a director of an institute, looking, really looking after research that included the scientific, it included the medical, it included some of the social dimensions, and gradually became more and more aware um, and concerned about the the need in this changing world of ours, where we're all living longer and longer, to to understand what's driving that, so that we're equipped as individuals and as a society to make the best of what is, in truth, one of humanity's greatest achievements, the the near doubling of the average length of human life over the course of the last 200 years, is astonishing. So to give some context at the start to the podcast, the, where, where are we at now in terms of the science of ageing and, and where we've got to? You say that you know, it's one of the humanity's greatest achievements of where we've got to. Could you perhaps just explain that? Yes. Um, 
Well, the increase in life expectancy has been astonishing. Um, it was unforeseen, and I think this is one of the things that we have to recognise, is that really up until the end of the 20th century, um, everybody was expecting that the increases in life expectancy we'd seen during the 19th and earlier parts of the 20th century uh, would come to a grinding halt, and we would see no further increase in life expectancy. And the reason for that was that life expectancy is a kind of average in the population. So what we had seen during uh, you know, the Victorian era and later was that we became better and better at preventing people from dying young, from dying in the early and middle years of life. And we know all the reasons for that. We know about sanitation, you know, sort of clean drinking water, better housing. And then medicine makes its contribution with vaccines against the big killing diseases, chiefly diseases of children. And then in the middle of the 20th century, along come antibiotics. So you know, we're able to take care of illnesses that would have killed a lot of people uh, you know, at any stage across the life course. But in the background of this, people assumed that aging itself was simply a process that was programmed, that we, it was a given, it wouldn't change. So what was being projected by all the big forecasting agencies, the United Nations and you know, everyone else, was that you know, we would see a world in which lifespan itself would not particularly shift. We would just have more and more people making it through to the end of, you know, sort of three score years and ten or whatever it is, through to the 70, 80. Um, so we'd see this big upset in the balance of ages within the population. But, you know, that would be the end of the story. What really astonished people was to find, as we came through the 1980s, the 1990s, and into the early years of uh, the new millennium, is that actually life expectancy, contrary to all the projections, continued to increase at exactly the same rate that it had done before, but now for a totally new reason, and that is that people were reaching old age in much better health than had the generations before them. So the thing that has been driving the continuing increase in life expectancy is, uh, is a completely novel driver. It's the, the death rates of people who are very old already, people 80 and above, are falling and have been continuing to fall. And you've been looking at some of the, the science and the reasons behind that. Yes, and, and trying to understand what that means for health and society. You know, the, the very old in society, those over 85, are the fastest growing segment of the population. But, you know, they've been completely ignored. Um, and I became aware, I think as a result of doing the wreath lectures for the BBC in 2001, I got letters from listeners who said uh, 2001 was a census year. Uh, and did I know that in the 2001 census forms, there was a question on the first page of the form uh, that said, you know, are you over 75? And if the answer was yes, you were told to turn to the back page sign your name and send the form in. Or just want to get out, basically. <laughs> Without completing the 24 pages in the middle. Uh, and the, the impression that gives is that, you know, basically society is not terribly interested in very old people. Well, we're, like, we're done with you. You don't need to participate. Yeah, yeah, you're probably gaga, you know, sort of. <laughs> you know, really, there's no point. So, so back in 2006, uh, you know, with colleagues uh, in the Institute, uh, we secured funding to start what was a really radical and exciting new project, the Newcastle 85 Plus study. And the, uh, the, the way that study was designed, we, 
we began in 2006, we approached everyone in Newcastle who had been born in the year 20, 1921. So this was the year of their 85th birthday. And then we captured all the information that they were willing to share with us about their lives. But we could also look at their blood cells and see you know, so how they performed in terms of fundamentals that we think are connected with the aging process. And what did you find? Well, we found tons of stuff, and the study is actually still ongoing. You know, right at the beginning, one of the things that we found most striking, we looked at their general state of health. Now, yeah, there's a general perception that when you get to be very old, you, you become effectively a bundle of illnesses and sort of generally rather miserable. Um, so uh, we, we were able, from the investigation we made, to, for each individual to determine whether they had or did not have any of 18 different uh, age-related diseases. So everyone got a number. And it would be zero if they had nothing wrong with them, but it would be 18 if they'd sort of swept the board and had them all. And what we found was that three-quarters of people at age 85 had four or more age-related illnesses. And some right. had quite a number. So, so that fitted you know, with the general preconception. The traditional the, view, the yes. The traditional view. But then we asked them, you know, same people who got this information, we asked them to self-rate their health and quality of life. And we were astonished to find that 78% of them, so it's pretty much four out of every five of them, self-rated their health and quality of life as being good, very good, or excellent. And that was, that was quite surprising, because you know, the health professionals on the team, the research nurses, the doctors who were involved in the team, had been working with older people you know, throughout their careers, but they were working with the sick ones, the ones who came to medical attention because they had a problem. And you know, let's you know, let's be honest. There, although seventy-eight percent of them said their life was good, very good, or excellent, you know, that still leaves twenty-two percent who are probably having a rotten time of it, um, and they should not be ignored. But what it meant was that the picture of what life was like at advanced old age was quite different from you know the popular perception. And we we continued. We found that the same thing applied for levels of disability. You know, we could look at 17 different activities of daily living and the same thing, you could get a score of how many of those activities people could no longer perform. And we found that a significant fraction of the population could still do them all. Um, that's not to say, again, that there aren't some who require 24-hour care and attention. So you know, perhaps another message that comes through very strongly is the diversity of old age, that, you know, sort of, yeah, we have an unfortunate tendency, I think, in, in our talking about older people to use the, the phrase the elderly as if they were just one homogeneous bunch of people who are all in the same circumstances. Now, you know, there are circumstances you know, in which it's appropriate to talk collectively about a group of people of a certain age. But actually, the most important thing that comes out of looking at what life is like when you're very old is to recognize how everyone is different. And you know, we all, we're all, yeah, expect to have our differences acknowledged earlier in life. You know, we, are, we, we, we've come to recognise and celebrate diversity in our populations, quite right. But we need to extend that recognition of diversity to looking at older people. We, we basically need to to realise that you're still alive when you're old. Yeah. Because I think what you're saying is that the common view at the moment is that old age is almost like an antechamber, a sealed antechamber to death. And that actually, you know, that in these sort of 10, 20 years where you're 
old in inverted commas, you're, you're just waiting for something. You're not actually really living. And that actually we need to see it as part of life in its richness, however anybody else's life might be. Absolutely. I mean, it is, it is very interesting. And I'm, I'm now coming close to 70 myself. You know, one of the things that's changed is that people are genuinely younger now uh, you know, at a given age, younger in appearance, younger in behaviour, younger in outlook. Uh, than they were a generation or two generations ago. So, yeah, I'm reminded that I'm nearly 70 at certain times. You know, I get aches and pains. My eyesight is not what it was. My hearing is declining. <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've got, you know, sort of all the usual kinds of things. But on the other hand, you know, I, I don't expect, you know, the, the changes to become significantly life-limiting you know, immediately. They will. And I think it's really important to be prepared for that and to acknowledge it. I think it's a great mistake to try to deny the underlying reality of the ageing process. So you're having a personal experience of, of how this works. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and we all do, you know. And we, as we go through life, when you know, we all talk about ageing, we all have, almost all of us have had the experience of parents ageing. I mean, some of us lose our parents when they're still young. So, you know, there's no, there are no general laws that hold for everyone. But, you know, for most people, their, their first frontline experience of uh, what it's like to be very old comes from older relatives, uh, particularly parents. Uh, and you'll find that a lot of people will, will base their outlook on the experience they had with their parents. Now, you know, there's a lot of validity to that because that's their personal lived experience. On the other hand, you know, sort of, you only have two parents. I mean, sometimes with more complex families now, you have a whole clutch of older people. But, but it's, you know, it's a limited sample. Um, and so it's really important for the health well-being of our society and for our, the, the, the trajectories that we are individually going to follow into the future, that we try to, to learn more, to share more, to, you know, sort of, you know, to prepare more uh, without being obsessed and gloomy about it, but to, you know, to recognise that these are things that you know, sort of, it's not a good idea to deny. They will one day become a reality. So you've talked about our perception of older age and older people. I was also very interested in reading your book from the Reith Lectures about that there's a, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions as well about the science of ageing. And I think one of the things that you were talking about in the lecture was that um, the, the common misconception is that we are programmed to die and that actually we're programmed to survive. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that and about the theory that you came up with and that you're working on because I think it's it's quite revolutionary and it's a fascinating it's a fascinating idea that many listeners I think wouldn't be aware of. If you ask people why aging should occur, what I find is that you know so eight or nine times out of ten, the the kind of the, the answer that I get is well, it's obvious, you know, uh, you know, we have to have programmed aging. It's nature's way of uh, clearing out the old generation that's had its day and making room for the new generation. If we didn't have genetically programmed aging, the whole world would be overrun with uh, old and decrepit people and animals that didn't have the good grace to lie down and die and make way for the next generation. I'm, I'm presenting it a bit, you know, sort of emotively and graphically, but that's the kind of thinking. So. So the logic of that is to say, well, you know, you've got to have genes that you know, set 
the length of life and then actively turn on something that kills you at the end of life. Now, what we're learning is that that idea is completely wrong. And there are several reasons why it's completely wrong. The first is, yeah, if it was true that humans and rabbits and field mice and you know, sort of blue tits and all these uh, you know, sort of animals that undergo an aging process aged because it was a population-limiting mechanism, then if we go out into the natural world, you should see it at work. You should see aging actually killing large numbers of animals. And you don't. And the reason is simple. Uh, that's because in nature... Animals die young. You know, we know if we watch uh, natural history programs on the TV um, that you know, sort of life is pretty dangerous for most animals. Right. Uh, the reality is that you know, sort of very few animals in the wild environment make it through to the sort of old age that we're talking about here. So that tells you that a program actually isn't needed. But the other reason why we realise that the idea of programmed ageing is wrong is that it's almost impossible within the framework of the theory of evolution through natural selection to come up with a, a scenario, a mechanism, where it actually would be an advantage for the individual to undergo ageing and death. And one of the things that we've learned uh, is from the study of evolutionary biology is that natural selection doesn't work so much for the good of the species as for the good of the individual. So um, I've done quite a lot of work, and uh, some of this work involves looking quite carefully at the numbers, because natural selection is a numbers game. Um, and, and basically, where people have tried to explain aging as a program process on this basis, it doesn't work. The numbers don't add up. So that's really quite a puzzle. You know, aging is very widespread. You know, many, many animal species show an aging process. So if it's not needed, and if natural selection can't produce it as a good thing in its own right, why on earth does it come about? And the, the insight that came to me was you know, to, to build on the observation that it's unusual in nature to see very old animals and to say, well, well actually, that has consequences. And if you think... Uh, you know, nature doesn't work by rationalizing the process, but just imagine you were trying, you, you, you were rationalizing your genome, and your genome has to run the body in a number of important regards. It has to grow the body from the fertilized egg to the functioning adult. It has to invest in reproduction so that when you die, there are gene copies to carry your genes into the future. That's what selection is about. And it has to invest in maintenance. And this is the difference between germline and somatic cells, essentially. Yes. I mean, and this is, this is quite astonishing. But within the body, we have two really fundamentally distinct kind of cells. We have, we have many specialized cells. But uh, the great German naturalist August Weissmann realized towards the end of the 19th century that one set of our cells are what he called the germline. And these are the cells that produce the reproductive lineage. So these are the cells of the gonads, the testes, the ovaries. They produce the gametes, the egg and the sperm cells that will give rise to the next generation. And it's actually quite a staggering fact. And that is, as we think about our bodies here today now, our body contains you know, a very large number of cells. Where do those cells come from? Well, we know they come from the cell divisions that gave shape to our body. But where, you know, where does that start? Well, it starts with one cell from our mum and one cell from our dad. That's the, the sperm and the egg. Where do those cells come from? Well, they come from the bodies of our parents. 
Uh, where do they come from? And you go back to the grandparents and you go back and back and back. So the, the simple truth of the matter is that every cell in your body today could, if the records were available for inspection, could trace its presence here today through an unbroken chain of cell division that goes back four billion years to the beginning of cellular life on this planet. That's remarkable. It is remarkable because what it tells us is that this lineage of cells, the germline, is immortal. We can't say it will last forever. Some will go out. I mean, it will. It'll come to an end. But yeah, it's lasted for four billion years without breaking down yet. So that tells us the germline is rather special. But the other cells of the body are the differentiated cells. They're the cells of the brain and the skin and the heart and the lungs and the kidneys. Uh, and those are what Weissman called the soma. So soma you know, just means the rest of the body. And I was, I'd been doing some work on thinking about how cells invest in the accuracy of everything they do. You know, our cells are like little factories that are making big molecules all the time. And uh, these things don't just happen. They, they happen because they invest in very expensive proofreading and error correction mechanisms. I was thinking, well, you know, this is all very expensive. We're beginning to learn how, just how expensive maintenance is in terms of the budget, the energy budget of our lives. And I was thinking, well, actually, given that animals in nature are not going to live terribly long because they're going to be struck down by all the hazards of the environment, how much should our genomes be willing to invest in the long-term maintenance of the somatic parts of the body? For germline, you need really tip-top maintenance because you've got to pass on your gametes to the next generation. So you can't if, afford for those to be damaged or sort of fall apart in any way. That has to be maintained. Absolutely, that has to be maintained. And it, it happens in lots of ways. We've learned now that germ cells are better. They invest more in maintenance. But they're also very good at selecting out the duds. So, you know, so if, uh, we see that a man produces a huge number of sperm, only one of them gets to fertilize the egg. A woman has lots of eggs in her ovaries. Yeah, only a handful of them, compared to the total number, get to participate in ovulation, you know, so then could contribute to the next generation. The other ones are gone by the time of menopause. So where are they gone? That's because they've been subjected to quality control checks that have said, you know, you fail to make the grade die. Uh, and they do. They they they. they undergo a process of self-death. So, so germline is special. But soma, how much investment do you need in the, the rest of the body? The answer is you need enough to keep the body in decent shape for as long as it can reasonably expect still to be alive in the wild environment. So if you're a wild mouse, for example, field biologists have studied the, the death rates of mice in the wild, and we know that in nature, 95% of wild mice are dead before they're a year old. Uh, so only a handful of them will make them th make it through to 15 months or 18 months. And yet the lifespan of a mouse is three years. So you know, what do wild mice need? They need a body that keeps them in good shape through perhaps a year and a half. And beyond that, it would be a waste to over-invest in, uh, you know, in quality control and maintenance. And that basically is what gives the, the mouse a lifespan, a life cycle in which they have a year to a year and a half of really good quality biology before things begin to deteriorate. Then gradually things begin to break down and a mouse will die of old age at about three years. When we bring it to humans, you know, so we don't know exactly how long we might have expected to survive in our kind of wild environment, but the indications are that 
you know, sort of 30 to 40 years would have been uh, you know, sort of pretty good going. So what do we need? We need a body which will keep us in great shape for uh, you know, sort of 30 or 40 years. But actually, you know, it never made sense for our genes to invest in good enough maintenance that we could last forever. Uh, and that basically you know, is, is what we have. Now, the important thing about that in terms of you know, how we understand the, the science of aging, the mechanisms of aging, is that it says that there's nothing in our genomes that is there to kill us. Actually, you know, everything in our genomes is there to help us survive. But it was never a sufficient priority to invest enough in survival mechanisms that we could last indefinitely. So it's a question of the balance of investment of energy you want to put into different types of cells. Absolutely. And now that we're beginning to understand the aging process in more detail, you know, so, and maybe you know, we would actually like to be able to improve the quality of the later years of life. And how would we do that? Well, you know, ways are being discovered that you know, sort of involve engaging with the mechanisms that drive the aging process and perhaps you know, finding ways of you know, improving the body's survival mechanisms, its maintenance systems. So yeah, in working to enhance the quality of our later years of life, we're not trying to you know, sort of overturn the grain of our biology as we would if we were trying to dismantle a program for aging. We're actually working with our, with our natural systems to say, you know, we're very good at maintenance. You know, we, we can last for nearly half a century in, 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 in astonishingly good condition, despite all the many, many things that threaten the viability of the survival of our cells. But, you know, we, we, we have these tip-top maintenance systems. We're far better at maintenance than is a mouse, for example. Um, you know, so we're among the longer-living mammalian species. But perhaps we can do a little bit more. To, to enhance those. So does the, does the evidence suggest that there is potential for engineering sort of greater longevity in people and or greater quality of life in older age? Or are those two things linked? I mean, these are, the, these are very interesting areas. People have been fascinated uh, you know, since the dawn of time and the possibility of finding a way to you know, banish the aging process to live for longer. Um, it, it's now, you know, for the last you know, sort of few decades, it's become possible to sort of think about what that would actually mean. We know from studies on short-lived animal models that you know, there are things that can be done that could make uh, a little nematode worm as a normal lifespan of just three weeks. You can make them live longer by tinkering around with their biology. You can do the same thing for fruit flies, and you can do the same thing for mice. Um, in principle, there's nothing fundamentally different about you know, sort of the mechanisms of human aging, but I think we need to be very careful in trying to sort of project what exactly this might lead to. Um, first of all, you know, so if, if, you, if you talk generally about, you know, and ask people, you know, do you think it's a good thing for science, medical science, to be trying to make people live longer, you get very mixed answers. And, uh, and I think the, the overriding issue is that actually, you know, sort of nearly everyone says, well, only if the quality of my life is improved. And I would agree with that personally. I mean, I don't think there's, yeah, I, I don't think it makes sense to try to make people live longer if it means more of the bad stuff that comes at the end. Um, it's nice to be alive. Uh, and you have to uh, slightly qualify that observation by saying, you know, you, 
you maybe need to ask people who are going through that bad stuff whether in spite of what's happening to them you know sort of they you know, a little bit more would be would be welcome so we shouldn't prejudge the issue we're terribly good at looking at our people and saying god i wouldn't want to still be alive if i was like that right but the lesson we learned from the newcastle 85 plus study is that old people despite having quite a number of different illnesses that might seem very unappealing when you're young and in the peak of your health are actually quite manageable and you can enjoy a good quality of life but it means that we need to think seriously about these questions to have a proper informed debate uh, you know about what we would like to happen i think also you know what is really important and beginning to be recognized now is that you know, for the vast majority of illnesses that affect people in today's rich nations in the world, we're talking about age-related diseases, things that come with our progress through the lifespan. And there's a long list of these conditions. So, you know, everybody's afraid of dementia. Dementia is one of them. Heart disease is another disease that becomes commoner and commoner as we get older. Osteoporosis, you know, sort of macular degeneration you know you could you, you could carry on with uh, literally dozens of these illnesses the important thing to recognize is that the single biggest risk factor the single biggest underlying cause for all these diseases is the aging process itself so you know the the, the new frontier in medical science is going to be trying to connect what we understand about the aging process with what we understand about the things that give rise to all these different illnesses. And the first tiny baby steps are being you know, beginning to be made in that direction. I think by the end of this century, you know, sort of, well, I hope uh, the you know, sort of medical science has, you know, has grown up a little bit and you know, sort of understands the importance of making these connections. And probably people in the future will look back uh, you know, sort of on today's uh, efforts and say, you know, how did it take them so long to, you know, to make this kind of connection? It's so obvious and it's so important. But I think you know this is, uh, yeah, this is it for the future. Do you, do you th I was going to say, do you think there's any way you can make any sort of suggestion about where things might get to in the next fifty years, end of the century, without it being a sort of headline speculationy thing? Is is it feasible or credible to even try and do that? I would encourage caution. Because um, we're talking about you know, sort of a realm in which we have some knowledge, uh, you know, we have we have some pointers. But I think uh, you know, there's a natural tendency always to to you know, to want progress to happen sooner rather than later. Um, and I think because of the nature of the subject, we tend to get a lot more excited about you know sort of the science of aging. I, you know, quite understandably, having worked in the field. You know, for many years, I've found that when we report a, an advance, you know, sort of in order to be able to grab people's attention, if you talk to a journalist about this, it comes out that usually the sub-editor introduces a headline, scientists discover the secret of eternal youth, or, or, or something that, that seriously overstates the, the significance of what's been found. And it doesn't happen to that extent with, you know, sort of health. People have become very cautious about overstating the, the time scale and the likelihood of progress in treating conditions like cancer or heart disease. I think we're actually seeing at the moment some really very exciting progress in, in, in science's ability to get to grips with certain kinds of cancers. The new immunotherapies that are being applied for cancer are having you know, some 
breathtaking successes. But as we sadly know very well, the progress towards general cures for cancer, you know, sort of in, is painstakingly difficult. And you know, I think we, you know, we would all wish for a more rapid rate of progress in dealing, you know, not only with cancer but with heart disease or respiratory disease. Uh, you know, a lot of people come towards the end of their lives suffering from chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder (COPD), which leaves them struggling for breath and the lungs fill up with fluid. It's a, it's a really unpleasant condition and you know, sort of it requires great courage and determination to battle forward with this kind of condition. Wouldn't it be nice if science could wave a magic wand and get rid of that within a foreseeable time scale? So yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's every reason to be optimistic uh, that progress would be made, but I think it's a mistake to, you know, to say by how much uh, we might be able to change things, and by when. I mean, I, you know, we can look at the process that's involved. You know, we, we know the kind of timeline between discovery of a new potential drug, the, the licensing for clinical trials, the, the, can, the performance of a trial, getting the results. You know, bringing that drug into actual practice to benefit people. And, you know, all the time we hear stories about you know, new drugs becoming available, and and people's impatience and frustration and disappointment that they're not, you know, there in clinics and you know, available for treatment. Some of it's a funding issue, but most of it is due to the the really necessary requirement to make sure that these things truly work. To find out how they work to best advantage and to make sure that they're safe. And I think if we're looking at drugs that might act on something as fundamental to our biology as the aging process then uh, I think there's even more reason to be to be guardedly optimistic, but not to overcommit. So this is fascinating stuff. We've, we've, talked, we've talked about it not making sense to try and make any sort of grand predictions about how this might all pan out. Do you have a sense of the potential benefits to people's lives that greater knowledge in this area could bring? It may sound like an obvious question, well, yes, it might help us to solve some of these ageing diseases and conditions, but are there, are there other sort of wider benefits that you think it could have? I think that knowledge about ageing is, is valuable to all of us. Um, it was really that deep belief that led me to you know, write my book, Time of Our Lives, that was published 20 years ago. I felt then that it was important for people to be given the information that would allow them to understand what is scientifically a very intriguing you know, sort of question, which is, you know, why does ageing occur? but also to understand what we're learning about what you can do to improve the prospects of a healthy old age for yourself. Aging, because it's not driven by genes, let's be clear, genes do have a role in, in longevity. Yeah, so longevity does to some extent run in families. So if you're born to long-lived ancestors, the likelihood is that you will live a little bit longer than the average yourself. But we now know a lot of evidence has shown us that genes account for only about 25% of what determines longevity. And where we've been able to identify what the genes might be that play this role, it's exactly what you might expect, that these are genes that regulate fundamental maintenance and repair processes. So, you know, so you may be genetically endowed with slightly better DNA repair than I am, which might mean that, you know, trouble in your DNA will build up more slowly than it will in me, but I might have better protection against oxidative damage and stress than you have, and, yeah, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, so genes play a part in that kind of way. 
But because we know that genes don't actually drive the aging process, we're not programmed to age and die, we're learning that aging is much more malleable uh, at a fundamental biological scientific sense than we used to think it was. And really it's this malleability of the aging process that I think underlies the continuing increase that we've seen in life expectancy you know, over the last few decades. Because people, the kinder conditions of modern living mean that, you know, we are reaching old age with less accumulated damage and, you know, sort of harm in the cells and tissues of our bodies. So the more we can do to understand what makes a difference, the, the more, and the more we can communicate that understanding to people so that they can make choices in their own lifestyles. You know, we don't want to impose a formula on people, but... Given the information, if we are told that certain patterns of uh, nutrition you know, will give us a much better chance of reaching old age in good shape, uh, if the certain kinds of lifestyle choices, for example, levels of physical activity will do the same thing, then, then it gives people the information on which they can make the important choices. And, and that information is accumulating quite fast. So we're beginning to learn about how nutrition affects aging. We're learning in particular about the importance of physical activity. There are other kinds of things. I mean, how, how much does psychology influence aging? Should, you know, if you can cultivate a positive frame of mind, does that make a difference? These are questions. There's, there's the beginnings of evidence in these kind of areas, but we probably need to learn them a lot more. And perhaps the clearest evidence for the importance of this is you know, one of the things that I think we should be most unhappy about in today's society, perhaps even to the extent of feeling ashamed that there is this terrible social gradient in healthy life expectancies so that the, putting it broad brush terms, the haves can expect to live 10 to 12 years longer in better health than the have-nots. And understanding what it is that in the body generates these differences We've got social circumstances, you know, we, we know how important money is, but, but it would be possible to eat healthily and take a sensible amount of physical activity without spending a lot. So it's not just money, it's much more the whole social package. You know, it brings in factors like you know, self-esteem, sort of aspiration. If you, if you, if you grow up in an impoverished uh, you know, former mining village in County Durham or something where you know, the world around you is pretty rubbish and you know, sort of prospects are not great, you, you may be less inclined to do the things that will give you a better chance of making a healthy journey through life than if you, you, know, if you grow up in a, a more privileged environment. But, but these, are, these are complex and interconnected factors, and, and we need to understand them much better. And this is, of course, where science should be informing social policy. It should be driving it for the future, presumably. Absolutely. I, I, I think uh, science and social policy have to come closer together. There are, there are some encouraging signs that this is beginning to happen, but really we need to give it a higher priority. And we need, you know, we need to celebrate the information that's becoming available. We need to share it. We need to understand it. We need to, we need to appreciate it. We need to be prepared also to have conversations that are, you know, sort of not always that comfortable or, or easy. I mean, end-of-life conversations. We need to be 
prepared for the transitions that life is likely to require of us. As we get older, we maybe lose, you know, sort of the capacity to do certain things for ourselves, so, you know, big debates, big arguments about, you know, whether you should, how long you should aspire to stay within your own home, whether you should be prepared to make a transition to a care environment. Part of the problem is that, partly based on fact, but also, you know, on, on general prejudice, we are mostly rather uneasy about making those transitions. But you can go to other countries in the world where the setup seems to operate more successfully. So we need to open up our social discussion to take a good hard look at these issues, both in terms of how we organise things, but also yeah, in terms of how we individually prepare and plan and articulate our views and our wishes. Clearly these topics have a big impact on how we think about our own lives, but also how we think about society and what a good society looks like. It challenges our view of what a good society looks like. Perhaps to wrap up the conversation, you could give us your thoughts on what consequences and does this have for our view of a good society? I think this is quite challenging, and I'm not sure that I have yet, to my satisfaction, kind of got my head around all of these issues. But I am very aware. I live in a rural part of the country, um, and I'm, I'm very, very conscious of the, the changes that are occurring that are making life progressively more difficult for people, you know, sort of contemplating old age, you know, sort of in rural communities, the withdrawal of banks, the withdrawal of fundamental services, the, the inadequacy of public transport, you know, there's whole, whole issues of driving, and people talk about driverless cars becoming available, but, you know, who knows, you know, sort of when. What, what we need is probably to, to really focus on the interconnectedness within society, to, to do things that sustain relationships, um, I mean, society is almost defined by the way we interact with each other. And I think, uh, you know, we, we become increasingly busy. We do, we do a lot of shopping online. Um, Ten years ago, in you know, part of the world where I live, people didn't do much online shopping. Now you go out and probably the majority of vehicles on the road are vans zipping here, there and everywhere and dropping off parcels. Yeah, I think it's, it's wonderful, I but if you're doing these things online, that assumes, of course, that you've got the connectivity that makes this kind of stuff possible. Uh, you're losing the interactions that you get from going out and shopping and uh, you know, sort of meeting people in the community, talking to shopkeepers. So there are a lot of factors that are driving us to lead rather more, it would be unfair to say selfish lives, but sort of self-focused lives, self-centered lives, at the expense of the necessary social interactions. And... And we hear a lot about loneliness as a sort of factor in the lives of older people. Uh, yeah, and that's entirely consistent with you know, sort of the, the, the trend. So it's entirely within our grasp to try to get a grip on what is happening and to change things. And yeah, I, my experience is based on, on living in a rural environment, but I'm well aware that you know, sort of exactly analogous issues exist within urban environments. And you know, sort of wherever you live, the nature of society and social interaction is undergoing change that is quite challenging. So we, we need to keep people in the older stages of their lives more involved in relationships and have more infrastructure around them to physically be able to participate and to be around. Presumably also there's the simple issue that we need to rethink our views of what it is to be old and what yes. old age is. That kind of takes us nicely back to the early part of our chat is that that seems to be 
almost the first stage we need to go through as a society. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that there is still a lot of prejudice and, you know, negative thinking about old people. You know, sort of, sometimes it's, you know, sort of overt ageism. But, you know, but at other times it's just, sometimes it's a lack of familiarity. You know, people don't know how to interact with older people. But, all, you know, what I've experienced in life, both in my work, but also, you know, just, just living, is the, the delight that, you know, sort of is offered by interactions with older people. And I think one of the encouraging signs, uh, you know, sort of, of what might be possible are initiatives that, for example, are connecting uh, schools, school children with older people in their communities, because kids seem somehow to be very open to those kind of interactions. And, yeah, and they, they get a lot of benefit from getting to know older people, from relating. It's, it's often, it's the sort of sandwich generations in the middle, the ones that are you know, really busy with their lives, with their jobs, with their children, and increasingly now trying to sort out issues for caring for older relatives, you know, sort of, and there just don't seem to be enough hours in the day to put it all together. But yes, I think it is important. I've, I've done projects that have taken the science to, into schools and, and, and worked with teenagers for the most part, you know, sort of helping them to appreciate what science is discovering about ageing, but also what lives are like for older people. And I've found that to be very uplifting and very encouraging. Uh, and we see from time to time on the news and newspapers examples of really exciting projects that build bridges between the generations. So I, I, I would love to see more of that. So that was my conversation with Professor Tom Kirkwood. Many thanks to Tom for his time and for such an interesting discussion. I could have talked to him for hours. It was fascinating to hear about how our views of life, death and ageing have been transformed in recent decades. Having said all this, it was also amusing, and none too surprising, to hear his examples of how the media can take very carefully worded, tentative conclusions from scientists and turn them into headlines that make wildly inflated and inaccurate assertions. Many other academics have similar experiences and I guess it's not just the media that likes to inflate their conclusions. We all like to think there's a big sensational win on the horizon as it gives us hope. But in reality, the process of improving the world, whether it's through the accumulation of scientific knowledge or the building of political change, is often a slow and incremental one rather than one with quick glamorous breakthroughs. It takes painstaking work and a lot of patience to make any progress and we should be braced for this if we're seeking change ourselves, and should be sympathetic to this rather than expecting unrealistic breakthroughs from others. Perhaps one of the most important conclusions from Tom's and other people's work on ageing is the need for our social policies and attitudes towards older age and older people to catch up with the increase in longevity that science is helping to achieve. I think Tom puts it best in his last words of his wreath lecture, I challenge society, collectively and individually, to rethink its attitudes to older people, to recognise the value and beauty of the fact that we are all living so much longer, and to make sacrifices to accommodate those who presume to live on when previously we would have died. Above all, I challenge us all to put an end to age as something that we let get in the way of celebrating all individuals on this earth as true equals. If you found our chat interesting, do read Tom's book, The End of Age, which includes transcripts of his wreath lecture, 
and is a great place to find out more about this fascinating subject. Anyway, thanks for listening. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast and do share it with anyone you think might like it. See you in the next podcast in two weeks' time.